Thank you all for a wonderful time of worship. Exodus 37 tonight. A chapter on the reflection of God. As we go through these pieces of furniture or the equipment found in the tabernacle, just as we've been sharing for several weeks now, just like our home is a reflection of us, God's sacred space, his house, is a reflection of him. Everything has meaning. In fact, something I want to share tonight at the very beginning that I know I want to remember, and that is that the significance of the tabernacle isn't in its magnificence, it's in its message. Let me say that again. The significance of the tabernacle isn't in its magnificence, it's in its message. It was basically a glorified tent that moved around the desert. And yet, what it said about God, what it reflected about God, what its message was about God was most significant. Nothing has changed. What does Paul tell us? He says, you have this treasure, but it's in earthen vessels. So that it's not about the external or the out outer, it's about what is on the inside. Because our outer man is perishing, but the inner man can be renewed day by day. And so God places his treasure inside of fragile, finite human beings. Even though these physical bodies are going to wear out and die, God placed his treasure inside of us so that it's not about the magnificence of the vessel, it's about the message that we carry. And the same thing was true about the tabernacle. Another thing about the tabernacle is it was not only a worshipful space, it was a working space. Again, just like our sacred space. It's a place where we come and we worship God, but we also work, we serve, we minister. You remember, these priests were always moving, always on the go, whether it was accepting sacrifices and burning sacrifices and, and spreading the blood and cleaning up all the ashes and all the blood, whether it was trimming the lamps or making sure that the oil was always filled and so that the, the lamps could be burning and so that the incense could be filled. It was a working space as well as a worshipful space. And we need to keep that in mind as well. God wants that to be true of every sacred space. It's a time to come to worship, but it's also a time to work and to serve and to minister for the Lord. And the same thing is going to be true throughout eternity. Because we know from the book of Revelation and other prophetic passages that throughout glory, we will both be worshiping God and serving him. It's never going to change. There's always going to be that balance between 
the worship of God and serving him or working in some way for his kingdom. So tonight, there's these four prominent pieces of furniture, if you will, that we want to talk about in Exodus 37. And we're going to be turning to a lot of different passages of Scripture tonight. But I want us to sort of just get another run, if you will, at these pieces of furniture or this equipment to remind us again about the fact that it's all about reflecting God. And the reason I want us to do it is because there's so much here that you and I could meditate on and contemplate and consider. And I hope even that tonight doesn't near cover it all, but maybe it will stir something in you to meditate upon this passage of Scripture and think through these Scripture passages yourself and think about your God in the way that he's reflected in the tabernacle. Because obviously we've talked already about the Ark of the Covenant and about the table of bread and about the lampstand and the altar of incense. We've already talked about it, but I want to run at it again because God wanted to repeat it again. And again, we've also learned in the book of Exodus, repetition is good. Repetition is God's way of just cutting a deeper groove, engraving it even deeper into our psyche, if you will, so that we get it and so that it sticks with us. The Ark of the Covenant is described here in the first nine verses. And I talked about the significance of covenant, that it is a chosen relationship, and that the Ark of the Covenant is reflective of God making a way for sinful people to have a relationship with a holy God. Now, before we get into some of that, though, I want to go and look at a couple things here, like in verse 1 and verse 2. What was the ark made of? It was made of acacia wood. What does that reflect about God? It was one of the strongest woods. Strong. God is strong. It was a wood that was resistant to decay, so it was durable. This Ark of the Covenant was going to last for years and years and years through all kinds of weather and all kinds of circumstances and everything. And it's a reminder to us that our God goes with us through it all. He's a durable God. He's not a God that's just there when things are going good. He's there through every season of our life. And he's strong. In fact, he's the strongest. There's nobody stronger or more powerful than God. He is the almighty God. But then you'll also notice that this wood, verse 2, was overlaid with pure gold. And it is a reminder to us of the value and worth of God, and also his beauty, his beauty. Because it was inlaid with gold and it was overlaid with pure gold. At the end of verse 5, there were poles placed in the ark so that the ark could move and be moved. And again, it's a reminder that God goes with his people everywhere they go. Again, all 
a reflection of God. Let's remember what was placed into the Ark of the Covenant. There were three things inside the Ark of the Covenant. First was the tables or tablets of stone with the commandments of God. What does that tell us about our God? He's a communicator. He communicates. He reveals. He shares with us his word in order to lead us, to guide us, to share with us what is the best way to live life. The second thing you have in the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's rod that budded, that bloomed, that blossomed. And let's remember the backstory of that. God had them lay out rods representing every tribe. And he would indicate by which rod blossomed or bloomed or budded what tribe would be the Levitical or priestly tribe. And it was Aaron's rod that blossomed or bloomed. So it is a reminder to us that our God is a God who gives clarity, who vindicates those that he's already called. It is a reminder that he's a God who gives discernment when having to make decisions. All of this is reflective of God. That he makes a piece of wood blossom. He's a God of miracles. He's a God who can bring flowers out of wood that's dead. So, so much about God, even in what's contained in the ark. And then you have the final thing, and that's the pot of manna. They placed some manna in a jar in order to remind them of God's faithfulness and provision throughout their entire 40 years of wandering. That there was never a day where God's provision of manna did not show up, that he rained it down from heaven, that it was supernatural, that if God needs to do something supernatural to provide for his people, he will do it, but he will always be faithful to his promises and to his people. He is a God who can be relied upon and depended upon. He's trustworthy over and over again. All these things in and around and the ark itself reflect something of our God. And that's why God wants us to think about these things and not just read about them and move on because they were designed and built and placed in the tabernacle for a purpose. And one of the great purposes was it was to reveal who God is to his people. We come to verse 6, the most significant thing about the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, just as Nicole reminded us, the Ark of the Covenant was the only piece of furniture that was behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. It was hidden. They, they were separated from God's presence that dwelt in the ark or on the ark. But we come to verse 6 where on the ark, 
was what was called an atonement lid. This is where the blood of the sacrifices would be sprinkled and spread. And this is reflective of the fact that God is holy. And God needs to, as a holy God, deal with sin. And if a holy God is going to have a close, intimate, personal relationship with sinful human beings, then sin has to be dealt with. And from the very beginning of his interaction with sinful human beings, what God was saying is there must be a substitutionary sacrifice. There must be blood spilled in order for you, a sinful human being, to have a relationship with me. Go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, their covering was not adequate. God slayed an animal and put the skins of the animal on Adam and Eve to show them that someone or something had to die in their place. You see, and so the atonement lid is a reminder of the holiness of God, and yet the length that God will go to in order to establish and have a relationship with sinful human beings, to the point where all of these animal sacrifices points to the one great sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came and laid down his life in order for us to have life with God and be restored and reconciled and realigned to him. But all of this then also reminds us that God, by having an atonement lid, is a God of forgiveness, is a God of mercy, is a God of grace, is a God of reconciliation. It's all there for us if we just Take our time and think about the Ark of the Covenant and what its message is to us. It is all reflecting a message about our God. And so hopefully as you and I think about the Ark of the Covenant, we'll take the time to contemplate all of the pieces of the Ark, all the, of the things that God made it for because it was, again, to give us a message. In fact, even over in verse 9, before we move to the table of bread, there are these cherubim whose wings overshadow the atonement lid. Now, we are told in the New Testament that angels actually desire to look into the things of salvation. They have a natural curiosity because they don't relate to God that way. They don't have that aspect in their relationship. So they look even in awe and wonder at a God who would even give up his own life so that they could have life. But there's also by them overshadowing the atonement lid. There's also the idea of God's protection of his people. 
in the wings that overshadow the atonement lid and how God is protecting his people through the atonement from his wrath. And then there's the idea of a, a God of mystery. Because again, remember, the ark was separated from everything else and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year and attend to the Ark of the Covenant. So there was that separation and there was that, that air of mystery. Not everyone could see the Ark even once it was built. It was sort of hidden, out of sight. And there's the idea that, that our God, even though we have a much closer relationship with him, through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus today, there's still always going to be a mystery, if you will, about God when it comes to us as human beings. We will never understand all that God is or all that God does. He will always be beyond us, even when we get to heaven. We're never going to be able to totally absorb all that God is. Why? Because we are finite and he is infinite. He is infinite. So there's the ark. Let's go to the table of bread, verses 10 through 16. In the table of bread, there was to be 12 loaves laid out, one for each tribe of Israel. In two rows, two rows of six loaves, you find this in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. Each tribe would have a loaf. And what does bread mean in the Bible? Well, first of all, we know whether you're talking physical or spiritual in the Bible, bread is a staple. Bread is a staple. It was something that the Jews had for every meal. Now, even me growing up, I grew up in a home where it didn't matter what we had for dinner, bread was a part of it. You just always had bread at every meal. Now, I've sort of rejected my parents' ways. I'm not much of a bread person. I know, I'm not normal but bread is symbolic of being a staple and think about the verses and passages that talk about bread in the bible man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god doesn't say bread's nothing though man lives by bread it's just not by bread alone. And that the word of God is our bread. Matthew 6, 11, Give us today, Lord, our daily bread. Again, bread is significant. Bread is something that we need from God and need to look to God for every single day. This coming week, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table. And what does the Lord do there? 
Besides the cup, he takes bread and he breaks it. And he says to his followers, this bread is symbolic of my body, which will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's significance there to the bread and what it means. But then I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture. If you'll go with me to the Gospel of John, keep your finger in Exodus. We'll come right back there to John's Gospel, chapter 6. John's Gospel, chapter 6. I'm going to begin in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate all the loaves of bread you wanted. This was on the heels of the feeding of the thousands with the loaves and the fish. Do not work for the food that disappears, but for the food that remains to eternal life, the food which the Son of Man will give to you, for the God the Father has put his seal of approval on him. So then they said to him, what must we do to accomplish the deeds God requires? Jesus replied, this is the deed God requires, to believe in the one whom he sent. So they said to him, then what miraculous sign will you perform so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Uh, he just fed thousands of people. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus told them, I tell you the solemn truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, sir, give us this bread all the time. And here's the key. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Bread. Bread. The table of bread. Why is it there in the tabernacle? Because God always wanted to remind his people, I'm your bread. I will give you physical bread, for your physical body, and I will give you spiritual bread for your soul. And if you believe in me and you follow me, you will always be fulfilled and satisfied. I am your bread. I am a God who will provide for your every need, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And in the tabernacle, there was not only the Ark of the Covenant, there was the table of bread. And then we come in Exodus 37, 17 through 24 to the menorah or the lampstand. Again, every piece of furniture reflecting God. And when you think about it, think about how 
God teaches us so much about him being light and how that is so reflected, reflective of him that in Christ we have clarity. We can see and have insight because of his light. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Thy word, Psalm 119, is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. God is our light so that we can see where we need to go. And in the tabernacle, God gave enough light so that the priests could see what they were doing and so that they could maneuver and move around, but it was also spiritually to be a message to his people that I will always be your light. Look to me. Look to me. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall never walk in darkness, but will always have the light of life. Are we living in the light of Christ? Are we following the light of the Lord? Two other passages I'd like you to look at with me tonight. Again, keep your finger in Exodus. We'll come back there. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. The book of Ephesians, chapter 5. If I can get there. Beginning at verse 6 through verse 14. Let nobody deceive you, Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, with empty words. For because of these things, God's wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were at one time darkness. Notice what he said. He doesn't say at one time you were in darkness. What does he say? At one time you were darkness. Wow. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For the things they do even in secret are shameful even to mention, but all things being exposed by the light are made evident. For everything made evident is light. And for this reason, it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If you forget everything else in that passage, remember that phrase, walk as children of the light. And then if you'll turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, a very familiar passage. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. 
People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. Light. Light has always been reflective of God and reflective of his people who follow him. He gives his people light to live by, to live in, so that we're not groping in the darkness and we don't know where to go and what to do. God in his light gives, again, leadership and direction and guidance and clarity. He is a God of light. And just like Adam and Eve, when we sin or do something wrong, what is our human reaction? I want to hide into the darkness. God says the only way to be healed and to receive healing from me is to bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. That's counterintuitive to us, by the way, as human beings, because when we do something wrong or we sin, what's that feeling? Shame. So because of shame, I want to hide. God says, get rid of your shame and bring it into the light and let's deal with it and let's move on. Let's be healed. There's a lot of people today that have not experienced the healing and wholeness of God because they're still hiding in the light because of shame. God says, get rid of it and come into the light and let's deal with it. And then finally, back in the book of Exodus, Chapter 37, verses 25 through 29, the altar of incense. An altar, by the way, is a place of worship. And God's revelation always demands a response. So here you have laid out the Ark of the Covenant, which is reflective of God, the table of bread, which is reflective of God, and then the lampstand or the menorah, which is reflective of God. But the altar of incense is different in that it goes up to God. It is the perfume of burning something. And it is reflective then of our praise and worship and thanksgiving going up to God as a sweet-smelling savor to him. It is a reminder to us that even in the tabernacle, it's not to be a one-way thing where we're just receiving revelation from God and where we're just receiving understanding and greater insight into who God is through these pieces of furniture which give us a message about him. It's also to be moved to a place where it's not just, again, filling our heads with facts and intellectual understanding, but where our heart is moved by a God like this and where we are going to offer him thanksgiving and praise and worship through the incense that goes up. And as we, in a sense, are burning up for God, our praise and worship and all of that is reflective in that. So with that in mind, travel with me now. You can leave the book of Exodus and go to a couple passages of Scripture as we close our time together tonight in the house of God. Psalm 100, let's start there. 
Psalm 100. Verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give him thanks, praise his name. How can one enter the gates with thanksgiving? By living a life the other days of the week being thankful to God. It's not about just trying to, you know, some people think that worship and praise and and a a thankful heart and all of that is like a, a light switch that you can just flip on and off. No, no. It's something that has to be continually cultivated in our life. So when you and I live a life of thankfulness and gratitude and praise and worship to God Monday through Saturday, then we can come into the house of God on Sunday and we can be entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Or on Wednesday night, when the rest of the week, we're also praising God and worshiping him and and showing our gratitude and thankfulness, then we can come in on Wednesday night entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Not coming here and trying to like stir it up, but coming in with that attitude as well. Then if you go over to Psalm 103, just a couple of psalms over, the first five verses. These are some of my favorites. Praise the Lord, O my soul, with all that is within me. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his kind deeds. He is the one who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who delivers your life from the pit, who crowns you with his loyal love and compassion, who satisfies your life with good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle's. I could go on and on on that one. Then Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. These verses, these verses are the incense of our life. This is what goes up to the Lord in response to what he has revealed to us about himself. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and firm in your faith, just as you were taught. And then here it is overflowing with thankfulness. Not just thankful, overflowing with thankfulness. Two others, both in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 28. So since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us give thanks And through this, let us offer worship pleasing to God in devotion and awe. Then don't miss verse 29. For our God is indeed a consuming fire. Incense, the perfume of something burning. When we think of God being a consuming fire, many even Christians always look at that in light of something negative. Like, ooh, no. God, in his love, consumes everything in our life that is contrary to him and not for our good. And when God purifies his people 
and puts us through the fire as he did Job, what did Job say? May I come forth as gold that is refined, that is purified. It's a good thing when God consumes us, when he, in a sense, puts us through his fire because then the perfume of our purified lives go up to him in worship and awe and adoration and praise. And we can even worship God in a more acceptable way when he consumes out of our life all that should not be there that's contrary to us and contrary to him. One more. Hebrews 13, 15. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you tonight for giving us this instruction and these verses about the tabernacle and the furniture in the tabernacle and how it is still, God, so relevant to our walk with you even today. Its message is still as strong and clear. It reminds us of who you are and what you've done for us and all that you are for us and how much you love us. And it reminds us, too, of what should our response be to such a great and good God. And Lord, I pray tonight that we all may have been inspired by our time of worship and our time in the word tonight and our time with each other. But most of all, Lord, our time with you. As we've sung about tonight, there is nothing like your presence, God. Oh, how we love your presence, God. And may we desire to be in your presence and live in your presence all the day long every day of our lives. God, thank you for this opportunity we've had tonight. Take us all home safely. Bring us back on Sunday once again to worship you, God, in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Thank you for